Well, I know you would agree if I say that sometimes life is really hard. Uh, someone asks you down the street, how's it going? And I bet what you say is not the same as what you really feel. It's really hard to pour out your heart to your neighbor as you're walking your dog and tell him everything that you're thinking. And so our response is usually, fine, how are you? But you know that there are times when we do need to pour out our hearts. And Asaph, the writer of this psalm, he does that. God knows everything within us already. And although it doesn't seem like it in this psalm, God really does listen and he hears our cries and our laments and he cares about your every need. And this is what this psalm is all about. But sometimes the answers aren't right away. Sometimes the answers aren't even close to what we thought we needed. Sometimes it's not according to our timing. We've been studying the Psalms in our Sunday evening Bible study, and I'm not going to give away spoilers because you're going to have to just come to that yourself. You can't get a shortcut by, by getting it all this morning. Uh, but there are some things that I think are important just to set up from the very beginning. Psalms is divided into five books, and you can see that in your own Bibles. Uh, and each book emphasizes a slightly different perspective from the king. Uh, most, many of the Psalms, I won't say most, but many are from King David. Others are from those who, who speak sort of on the king's behalf. And you know that, that these Psalms are, are just a smorgasbord of emotions. Everything from, from extreme high praise to kind of the darkest of the dark which is sort of where we are in this psalm today. Calvin calls the psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. An anatomy of all parts of the soul. The book of Psalms uh, opens, Psalm 1, with this great declaration of the one who meditates on the word and the blessings that come from that meditation. And if you know the end of the psalms, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But we're in the middle right here. And sometimes when you're in the middle, you can't see where you started from. The, the, the starting line is way too far behind you. And you can't really see where you're going because it's way too far ahead. And so in the very center of the third book of Psalms, God makes this statement that sort of summarizes where Israel is and even where we are in our lives. He says, O oh Israel, O oh Israel, if you would but listen to me, if you would but listen to me. And this is the predicament we find in Psalm 74. The psalmist doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to hide the fact that, that they've messed up. And they're in a bad place. God's not pleased. And all of this calamity that he describes here, uh, he can attribute it to the sin of Israel. They didn't listen. They didn't listen to their God. I don't have to ask you if you're ever guilty of not listening. Who can tell me what I just said? See, I knew you weren't listening. Uh, any parent, any teacher, anyone knows that, that it's frustrating when people don't listen to what we're saying. So this psalm is described as a lament. If you're not familiar with that word, it just means a complaint. This is a, a pouring out of grief and of sorrow. Uh, and... and in earlier psalms, you'll see these great declarations of confidence and assurance. Um, 
They're not quite as clear in these middle psalms. They're a little more subtle, but I will say that they're still there. Israel's in a dark place. They've lost what we might consider three of their most important pieces of their identity. They've lost their temple. They've lost their kingship. They've lost their land. And so, really, things couldn't look worse for them at this time. And so, the psalmist doesn't really hold back in his language as he cries out to God. Yet, he's not without hope. He hasn't walked away from the faith. There's always hope. There's this unshakable fact of God's promises, and the psalmist does know that. So we'll see that in the midst of all this desolation, of all this devastation, we know God's promises never fail. He has, he was, he is, he will be the mighty one who saves. So we can see this psalm really in three parts. A good sermon always has three, right? That's what we've learned. But the the first and the third part are very similar. You're going to see almost like a, a, a mirror of part one and part three. They're going to look very similar. But in the middle, we see this sort of surprising statement that the psalmist makes. So let's dig in. Our first part is verses 1 through 11, which I call, How Long, O Lord? The text begins, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? It's important to see right from the very beginning that the psalmist goes right to the source. He says, oh God, oh God. He doesn't mess around. He's thinking here very theologically. He's interpreting everything around him with the right perspective. And he looks up and says, oh God. He knows this is a spiritual issue. This isn't something just earthly. He's, He's really crying out saying, God, our great shepherd is no longer being a shepherd to us. The flock has been scattered. He says, and he knows that they've angered him in their disobedience as wayward sheep, and now they're feeling that that burn of his wrath. And so, right away, the psalmist claims this promise. He says, he's he's holding God to his redemptive acts in history, the, the God who's taken Israel as his possession. And he says, remember your congregation. You purchased us. You redeemed us. Remember. Now, this doesn't mean the opposite of forgetting. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten. He knows that's not true. But what he's saying is, God, please put your attention back to your congregation and think about them. Think about them with favor. Think about them with care. This is the same language that we find when Hannah was praying for a son in the book of 1 Samuel. And she cries out something very similar when she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me. And don't forget your servant, she says. And I will give, uh, but, but we'll give, please give your servant a son and then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And the Lord does answer Hannah. And we read this, it says, And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived, and she bore a son. And so that remembrance is is that turning his attention back and and giving favor to. 
We know that the thief on the cross says similar words when he says, Oh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not that the Lord forgot. He just says, Remember me. Then he says in the psalm, Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. So he's now taking God and saying, Please look. Look at what's left. Look at the temple. It's gone. It's been wiped out. It's been chopped down with axes. It's been burned. It's been leveled to the ground. He says, can't you see this? It's almost as if he's saying, look what they did to your house. These events are so horrific for, for the Jews at this time that they, they couldn't really even conceive that, that God would let this happen. They're, they're thinking, okay, if, if you really knew what's happening, you, know, you wouldn't let this happen. But see, deep down, I think the psalmist does know. He was not only aware that God knew, but that God really caused this. God, God allowed this to happen by his, his sovereign and mysterious will. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah said something similar and quite shocking. He says, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, he spurned king and priest. He laid ruins to his meeting place, is how Jeremiah describes it. The temple is often called the meeting place. The tabernacle was called the tent of meeting. This is where God would meet with his people. And imagine the despair that this psalmist is going through when he sees that temple gone. He says, how, how are we going to meet how are we going to commune? How are we going to experience those blessings uh, of being in your presence? The, the place where we can worship and sacrifice and, and make atonement for sin and, 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 and offer prayers to you. It's gone. And so he felt truly alone, truly abandoned. It would be like if, if you were a young child and you were left behind at a gas station when your family drives off in their camper on vacation. I think someone once told me that 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 happened to them. Uh, how, how would you feel? You'd feel that terror of abandonment that, that, that you've been left behind. No, no pun there of left, being left behind. Uh, the psalmist goes on in verse 9. He says, we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. There's none among us who knows how long. Everything that they were familiar with is gone. All of their instruments of worship the temple vessels, the, the words of prophecy that they would rely upon, the, all the instruction. He says, it's, it's gone, it's not there. And so he says, how long, how long will this, will this be forever? If this was only supposed to last 70 years in exile, did they miss it? Is, did, did they miss the t misjudge the time? There's no one, he says, to even tell us what's going on. There's no update. There's no news. No one's offering us hope. No one's offering us encouragement. And, and that's that, that agonizing silence that sometimes comes when you cry out to God. You're waiting for that answer, and it's just elusive, or it's, it's absent. Have you ever felt that God wasn't hearing you when you cried out to him? Maybe he's not seeing the same things that you're seeing. Maybe he, he's not experiencing what you are, because otherwise you'd, you'd expect him to, to respond, and sometimes he does not. Not in that way. There's a song that our family really likes. 
from an artist named Andrew Peterson, and it's called The Silence of God. I just want to read you how he starts his song, because I think it's real profound. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. We all experience that. So this last part of this first section concludes in verse 11 with, with a cry for, for action, or maybe it's a, a, a complaint about inaction. He says, why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. He, he sees that the enemy is mocking God himself, and he's saying, why aren't you responding to this blasphemy? Why aren't you dealing with this? Take your hand out of your pocket, so to speak, out of the fold of your garment, and act. This is a very bold statement, isn't it? This is, these are real, honest words from this psalmist about God. Uh, Habakkuk, the prophet, said something similar in his complaint. He said, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you'll not hear? Or, or cry to you violence and you'll not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at wrong? Why don't you do anything about it? But here, God does answer Habakkuk. He tells him something kind of sobering. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, he's saying. I, I am raising this enemy up to deal with you. God's using an enemy nation to accomplish his purpose. That's, that's very mysterious. That's very hard to get your head around. His purposes are, can humble us, and, and it should destroy any arrogance within us for us to presume what we think God should do. Remember the words from Isaiah where he writes about God, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways my ways, your ways, declares the Lord. David says his, his thoughts are lofty and they're so high he can't even attain them. So the psalmist here thinks he knows what God should do. But God is so much more above our own wisdom. But then he cries out, uh, nevertheless, for salvation. He cries out for deliverance. And it's not wrong in any way to, to cry those things. God desires to hear that we cry out for him to save. But now we find in our middle section here this shift. Look at verses 12 through 17, the section I call Mighty to Save. He pauses in his prayer, and, and it's almost as if he's been calling the Lord to remember, but now he actually remembers himself. And, and he sort of shifts now. He tells his audience now what he knows to be true. He's, he's going back to how God has worked in history, how God has, has done mighty acts of deliverance from Egypt, and even mentions the creation itself. He goes all the way back. This is sort of the psalmist's confession of faith, which is what we do every Sunday, don't we? We recite something as a confession of what we believe. We know that that gives glory to God, but, but why else do we do it? Well, it kind of bolsters us up, doesn't it? It gives us our, a boost of confidence. It, 
It kind of pumps us up in such a way. And I think that's what he's doing here. Calvin says of this verse, he says, In this verse, as we've often seen to be the case in other places, the people of God intermingle meditations with their prayers. He calls this a meditation in the middle of this psalm. Thereby to acquire renewed vigor to their faith, to stir up themselves to a greater earnestness in the duty of prayer. This is the part that's stirring him up. And it should likewise do the same for us. Look what he says in verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from old. There it is. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. So despite everything he just complained about, the devastation, the destruction, the the abandonment, the loss, he says God is still God. And he could still deal. He is all-powerful. He's done it in the past. We see some imagery in the next few verses about sea monsters and other other beasts of the ocean. And then some of this language would have been the imagery from the Canaanites' creation myths and how they would have described the the, the gods overcoming the monsters of chaos. And and the psalmist sort of uses some of that imagery here to, to show that God is above all of that. He's above even the false gods of the pagans. He's saying that, that God has power over all things. He made the world. He, he is delivered in these great mighty acts of salvation, despite the nations, despite what they try to do. Dividing the sea could be a reference to him leading the Israelites out of, out of the land of Egypt. And, and overwhelming Pharaoh and his armies as he crushed them. But then we see these final verses clearly describing the creation of the world according to the Genesis account. God is the one who established day and night. He's the one who, who made the stars and the sun and the heavens. He's the one who, who created all things by the word of his power. He made the seasons. He's saying, my God can do these things. What an amazing testimony in the middle of this psalm. It's good for us to to reflect upon these things as well. God is the ultimate king. He's the ruler. He's the maker of the universe. So with that kind of assurance that we reflect upon, how could we not be but edified and, and pumped up in our own faith? That's why every Sunday we repeat words like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I hope that sounds familiar to some of you. We say that often. And we say it for a purpose, because it's good to know these things. It helps us see that God is God, and we're not. And that's a healthy way to think. Job kind of lost his focus, didn't he? And God had to sober him up at the end of the book of Job. God answered Job in all of his complaints, And it says, out of the whirlwind, he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words? Words without knowledge. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. I think it helped the psalmist to to remind himself of these words, that God is above these things. And he's sort of preaching to himself, isn't he? As he preaches to his congregation. But now we come to this final section, where he's ready to go back now to his prayer. But his prayer at the end is a little bit more purposeful. It's a little more focused. 
Look at the last section starting in verse 18. These last five verses, six verses, which I call Arise and Save. These imperatives now resume. He's saying, God, do this, do that. But absent will be those cries of how long or why. He seems to have gotten beyond that now, and he's just going for a little more of a purpose here. The emphasis uh, in verse 18, he says, O Lord, remember how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. He's taking up that cause. He's saying, Lord, they're, they're speaking against you. They're blaspheming. He's saying they're, they're, they're breaking the third commandment. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. And he does take this seriously. And he's, he's, he's saying that, God, your name has been dishonored. Remember that. Put your mind upon that. He then asks, don't deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Don't forget the life of your poor. Maybe he was thinking of Isaiah's words about the compassionate God who said, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. But then he sort of pulls out all the stops in his next statement, and he's kind of laying down his, his ace of spades here. When he says, remember, remember the covenant. That's strong language. Of course God will remember his covenant. His very name depends on it, right? When he promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's such a wonderful promise. It's, it's a non-negotiable. Of course God's going to remember his covenant. From every age, we can cling to that truth. We know that in those dark places where there's the habitations of violence, his covenant will remain secure with us. We know that in the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be with us. We know that as an exile in the land with, with no homeland to return to, he will not forsake us. So why won't he act? Why won't he defend his name? What's he waiting for? We read at the end of this psalm in verse 22 and 23, he calls God to arise, to to defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Don't forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. He says the noise and the, the clamor won't stop. It's incessant. It goes up continually. He's saying, where, where are those still waters that you promised to lead us by? How can we be still and know that you're God with all this noise? And if you notice, there is no verse 24. There's, there's not really a, an answer at the end here, is there? At least according to this psalm. The answer is sort of found in the middle where he, he meditates upon what he knows God has done. But he doesn't have a resolution here in Psalm 74. But we know, don't we? We have that perspective. We have that, that full picture of how God has acted in, in the redemptive history of his people. And we know, without a doubt, the answer is in the person and the work of Christ. So as I conclude, let's, let's look at how Christ can fulfill everything that this psalmist was longing for. We read this morning in Revelation, 
chapter 1, that Christ was three things it mentioned. He was the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Remember in this psalm that the, he cried out, there's no prophet anymore. There's no one to give us that word of hope. But we don't need earthly prophets to speak truth to us any longer. Jesus, Revelation said, is that faithful witness. He's the fulfillment of that great prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. That God says, I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded. So we need no other. All the truth and comfort that we need are found in Christ. And we even know that he himself is called the Word. He is the Word. And we have the, the full written Word of God to give us everything that we need. He is sufficient, and so is the Word. The psalmist also cried out that the temple was gone. The temple was destroyed. How can atonement be made for sin? How, how can we meet with God? Well, we know, of course, that we don't need the temple for sacrifice. We don't need the place of meeting any longer. Jesus made atonement. He's called the firstborn of the dead. He died as that perfect sacrificial lamb. We don't need to lament an earthly sanctuary any longer. Jesus even called himself the temple when he told his hearers, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Paul also calls the body of Christ the temple, you and I as the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Spirit. So we no longer need that meeting place that the psalmist lamented about. Jesus said to the woman in, at the well in Samaria that you don't have to worry about these mountains of locations. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And we don't have to lament the loss of kingship either, the Davidic throne that seemed to be ended at that time. For in Revelation, we read that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on the earth. He reigns supreme. He's already conquered, and he's won the battle. Upon that cross, we read in our confession of our assurance this morning that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. So if all this is true, why do we still struggle? Why do we still feel like this psalmist at times? Well, that's because things aren't at their full end yet. We're still living in that, that in-between where, where sin still does entangle us. We still wrestle with how Paul described that old man that's within us. That, 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 that tension between our two natures, being born again and yet still dealing with the old self. We know that the kingdom is advancing. We know that God is still working salvation on the earth. And until he's finished, we're going to live in this struggle. We know that sin and death were defeated, but they, they, they still try to bring us shame. They try to bring us despair. They try to keep us from remembering what we know. We still see broken cities. We still see broken families. We still see broken bodies from, from disease and even things we prayed about this morning. So what can we take away from this psalm? Well, I think 
we need to remember ourselves what God has done, like the psalmist did. David was pretty downcast when he wrote Psalm 42. Oh, my soul, why are you downcast within me? But then he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and a song of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You know what he's talking about right there? Church, worship, sitting like you are right now. He's saying, I remember these things because I remember going up and, and being part of the worship. And so he's saying, that multitude that gathers is where I get my encouragement from. How can we remember about God if we don't know God? How can we take comfort in the company of believers if we don't gather in the company of believers? I'm preaching literally to the choir here because you guys are all sitting here. But for those who aren't here, remind them of these things, that this is what David knew was important. But it also, I think, gives us, Psalm 74, gives us an example of how to pray, how to, how to pour out our hearts to God. It's giving us that, that okay to be real, to be honest before the Lord, to, to tell him what's on your heart, tell him your fears, tell him your, your doubts, tell him your anxieties, tell him your lack of understanding, because he, he can handle it. But we can also ask him to remember us, remember that covenant love that he has for his people. He's not forgotten about the enemy. He still hears the cries or the, the, the uproar of those who are against him, and he will deal with them. He will on that day. But he's always going to be our great shepherd. He has not abandoned his flock. Are you of that flock this morning? Do you know him? Can you be named as part of his people? If you can, then, then take that assurance with you in every dark place you find yourself today and the ones that will come tomorrow. But if you're not sure, then know that, that God is still working salvation and he can work it for you. If you put your hope and your trust in him, knowing that he is the only one who can save, he is the almighty God of creation and of that new creation that he wants to make in you. Salvation is found in no other name. And together, all of us can affirm with the psalmist, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. May that be an encouragement to you this morning. Let's pray.